Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you uh, have had a good week, and wherever you may uh, be living in the world, I hope that all of you um, are continuing to stay safe and um, go about living as good of a life as there is possible, considering that there is a part of the world where um, we don't know what kind of resolution is going to take place, being that of the Ukraine. I would certainly hope that uh, Russia would one day come to its senses and realize that its actions towards Ukraine are beyond wrong, considering just how many people have fled, many people who may never return. And for those who have returned, life as they know is will probably never be the same as it was prior to the invasion. I should be very thankful that um, that living in the United States, while yes, there was 9-11 uh, nearly 21 years ago, and as tragic as 9-11 was, I should be reminded that I ought to be very thankful that, um, that I live in a country where... Um, where I don't experience, have to worry about experiencing uh, coups. I don't have to worry about, I don't have to worry about a lot of things that uh, people in other places uh, throughout the world have to live in constant fear of. You know, I, I'm very thankful that I can still go outside my home and um, go from point A to point B and not have to be in a situation where in some nations, if someone walks out of their house, they may not come home alive or come back inside alive. I'm not trying to scare you all, but these are the realities of the world that we live in, and we just need to be reminded that there are places in the world where people are not so fortunate regardless of uh, what kind of government they're living under, can um, have, a, have a big impact. But most notably, those whom are forced um, to seek asylum elsewhere or, um, or basically uh, become exiles. And when I think of exiles right now, I think of those in the Ukraine whom, have, uh, n whom really don't have anything to go back home to. And I can say that the pictures that I saw from the news the other night and just clips, it is, it, they are war crimes, very, very similar to World War II. Um, yes, I shouldn't uh, ignore what's happening, but at the same time, if I watch the news too much, it will make me sad. So by podcasting, it brings me... Um, comfort. It brings me joy. Although I do have to remind myself when I'm podcasting that whatever topic I am discussing, um, well, yes, it might be fascinating to learn about and to teach you all more about. I am reminded of, of the fact that the topics I have discussed, that there have been instances where, um, where a person or uh, where basically, where, how do I, su how do I sum it up? Where, um, there have been some not-so-good um, outcomes. So the most important thing to be reminded of is that even with these uh, book topic discussions is that while, yes, we come away learning more than we did before, 
there are um, instances where uh, some people um, did not um, experience pleasant outcomes depending upon the situations they were in. And so the only way to um, learn about those uh, matters is not only to uh, talk about them, but to um, make sure that we don't make the same um, mistakes, or I should say repeat the same actions that had been uh, that had occurred in times past. And I think most notably, um, leaders like Vladimir Putin of Russia need to learn about um, history's uh, past um, mistakes because he is uh, repeating several of them. I shouldn't sound political, but as I said before from the previous night's uh, podcast, that there are leaders out there in the world whom are making um, similar mistakes from what took place in World War II, and if we're not careful, history will repeat itself. So anyways, I think it's time that we need to uh, refocus on what it is that we've been discussing since uh, Tuesday, being that of the uh, fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream, by Kirkpatrick Sale. Now, we had a very good uh, prologue uh, discussion uh, from the previous uh, night, and in this uh, segment, we're going to learn um, about some uh, geography. You know, geography is important because we need to be reminded of where... um, cities, towns, or bodies of water are located, because if we don't, then how can we tell, go about telling someone else where a particular place or a uh, physical feature is on a, um, in this case, on um, a, a state's map or a map of a state in the United States? So our first leadoff question will be the following. For whom is uh, New York's Hudson River Valley region named after? Does anybody want to uh, take a guess? Well, I can tell you this much. It would be named after a famous uh, European explorer. Wouldn't it be fair to say that his last name had to have been Hudson? Yes. Does the name, um, does the name of uh, Henry Hudson ring a bell? The answer um, should be a definite yes. But that is for whom New York's Hudson River Valley region is named after. Henry Hudson was an English sea explorer, or I should say a navigator, who traveled um, to um, what we now know as present-day New York City and um, as well as uh, Long Island, New York. Um, As a matter of fact, he um, made two uh, journeys, one between uh, 1607 and 1608, and the other was in 1611. So basically, Henry Hudson... uh, you know, these were not uh, joyride uh, trips. I mean, he was trying to um, do something uh, for uh, for England. He was trying to, uh, for King James uh, of England, for whom Jamestown, Virginia is named after, he was uh, trying to uh, do something uh, to help benefit um, England, given that England is pretty much now the mightiest uh, empire, was pretty much the mightiest empire in the world by the the beginnings of the uh, 17th century when uh, Henry Hudson was alive. I did find it interesting that uh, Hudson's uh, first uh, journeys into what we now know as present-day New York City and Long Island um, began uh, around the same time that um, the English were f- made their first uh, permanent uh, settlement in North America at, uh, at what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia. 
So whenever you think of, think of the Hudson River, um, by all means, you definitely need to think about think of uh, Henry Hudson. Now, um, the second part to this question, I should have probably told you all earlier that this would be a two-part question, so I do apologize. But uh, for part two of this question will be the following. Was New York City America's biggest metropolis in 1807, being the same year that Robert Fulton's steamboat successfully traveled both directions along the Hudson River where he made history. So, do any of you all think that New York City was America's biggest metropolis in 1807? The answer is yes. Now, let me ask you this. Exactly what was New York City's population come 1807? Was the uh, city's population at a half a million? Was it at 100,000? Or was it at 83,000? The answer is choice C. New York City by 1807 was home to 83,000 people. The city alone had already earned the number one spot as America's busiest port, meaning she was now ahead of older established ports. And when I think of older established ports, most notably in the Northeast, I think of um, cities like Boston and Philadelphia. And when I think of Philadelphia, I think of uh, the time uh, prior to and um, leading up to when uh, the first shots uh, were fired around the world at uh, Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, on April the 19th of 1775. So at one point in time, yes, Philadelphia was uh, colonial America's uh, biggest and most uh, prosperous of um, port cities. Boston was up there. New York City was too, or rather I should say New York. And of course, if you want to go um, further south, uh, Charleston, South Carolina would have been in that uh, top four, top five uh, busiest uh, port uh, cities in uh, colonial America. But um, by the time we're into the early 19th century, New York City has eclipsed Boston and Philadelphia, as well as uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And what I found um, worth noting, well, let me um, ask you all some 101 um, questions. What does export mean, folks? When you're exporting goods, are you bringing them in or are you shipping them out? The answer is choice B, you are shipping them out. So when you were exporting uh, something, you were, you know, say, sending it from the United States to England, or it could be going from England to another European nation. When you were importing something, or rather I should say when something's being imported, it is coming directly into your country. So in other words, goods coming from England to the United States. The United States is the importer. They are the uh, receiver whereas England was the exporter, meaning they were the shipper or the senders. Just wanted to um, refresh uh, your all's minds, especially for you young people out there who, who are listening. Um, not trying to uh, question anything, but it is important to be reminded, um, especially in this um, 
day or uh, time of uh, rapid uh, technological um, advancements where uh, technology is changing all the time and information to some of the most basic um, questions is changing to the point where where the thought of pulling out a an actual dictionary book may one day seem so obsolete that uh, dictionaries alone may no longer need to be uh, physically used, that is, by opening up a book. So what I found interesting export-wise for New York City in 1807 was that uh, the Port of New York had attained uh, profit exports of just over $16 million. That's a lot of money, folks. So it is obviously fair to say that there's never a dull moment in New York City. But it's fair to say that there's not a dull moment in New York City prior to and after Robert Fulton's steamboat journey up and down the Hudson River uh, come summer of 1807. And what's even more uh, fascinating, I found um, I found out when reading this book, was that um, by the early 19th century, there were ships, believe it or not, folks, there were ships whom could sail within seven to eight weeks' time from New York to London, England. So in other words, if the weather conditions were just right, and not just the, it's not just so much, oh, that it's sunny outside, but if the wind was just right, that these um, ships could um, sail um, from New York, depart from New York, and, and sail across uh, the waters from the Hudson into the Atlantic Ocean and could arrive to London, England within a seven to eight weeks, eight week time span. That's all based upon whether or not their speed was on target and, and, due, uh, and also uh, attributed to the wind. But if that's interesting enough, um, how about um, getting to and from New York and Albany? You know, did it take seven to eight weeks just to get from New, from New York City to Albany? No. But the strength of the winds alone and the currents could uh, determine just how quick one could get from New York City to Albany and back vice versa. Usually that would have taken about 50 hours. Now, I know 50 hours seems pretty long, but we also have to remember, too, that uh, ships in the early 19th century, they're not going at 30 miles an hour. In other words, they're not moving like cars would on interstate highways. Is it fair to say that, obviously, the ships of the early 19th century are still re relying upon Mother Nature's uh, forces to get to and from point A to point B along a body of water? Oh, the answer is yes. And are many people comfortable with that? Yes, but we will find out that there are those whom want to uh, take things a step above, and not just a step above, but perhaps a couple of steps above that um, hasn't been uh, tried before, or if it has been tried before, um, those who have experimented with it seem to have uh, come up um, on the short end. Had any expansion from within the Northwest Territory resulted in admitting a new state into the Union prior to 1807? 
being the year of Robert Fulton's steamboat breakthrough. So remember, folks, that Northwest Territory was the first established uh, territory in the new United States uh, government that was agreed upon uh, by the Confederation Congress at the same time that the uh, Constitutional Convention is taking place in Philadelphia in uh, 1787. One of the biggest accomplishments, there, there were a lot of unique accomplishments with the Northwest Territory, but one of them, um, and I believe that this obviously would have been uh, been done via compromise by northern and southern delegates from Philadelphia, but I do know that they all agreed to um, outlaw, or I should say prohibit slavery in the Northwest Territory. And one of the um, leaders who did sign the Constitution, uh, he was from uh, Massachusetts, this man by the name of uh, Rufus King was the one who introduced the proposal to um, prohibit um, the expansion of slavery into the Northwest Territory. So in other words, folks, slavery wasn't, uh, wasn't going to be um, introduced into the uh, states that we know of in the Northwest Territory, being Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin. So uh, the question again is, had any expansion from within the Northwest Territory resulted in admitting a new state into the Union prior to 1807, being the year of Robert Fulton's steamboat breakthrough? Now, the answer is yes. Four years earlier in 1803, the first of the uh, five, uh, what we now know as five states that uh, were comprised of the Northwest Territory. The first of those um, of those states was uh, admitted into the Union in 1803. Ohio, she she was admitted into the Union as the United States' 17th uh, state in 1803, meaning that uh, what we now know as Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Illinois were now comprised of what was called Indiana Territory. So think about it, folks. So, um, you know, right after the um, right after George Washington became president, three more states had been admitted into the Union, being Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And so Ohio is the first state at the very start of the 19th century to be admitted into the Union. Is it fair to say that with Ohio being admitted into the Union, that um, Robert Fulton can foresee even more exciting things to come? Sure. Think about it. If technology can be enhanced over time to where a boat that can be uh, put into use without relying upon the forces of nature, think what that boat, think what this kind of new boat could do, folks. This new boat can transport goods from point A to point B into places where Trans where the thought of transporting those goods could never have happened. And better yet, transporting people. Not for leisure purposes, folks, but transporting people to, um, say, Ohio now, where they can start a new life. Think about it. Some of these people living on the eastern seaboard want to go west, and now they get their opportunity, given that it had been deprived years before, most notably from the uh, in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War that where Parliament pretty much issued that 1763 proclamation prohibiting westward expansion, that is prohibiting all white men 
uh, from going uh, past the Appalachian Mountains. The British were more um, concerned about protecting the rights of the Indians whom were along, living along the frontier. So think about it. Expansion is a good thing, and yes, it can be a not-so-good thing, but for someone like Robert Fulton, the fire of his genius, yeah, I'll take any kind of expansion. So what was uh, Robert Fulton's steamboat named? Was it the uh, North River Steamboat? Was it the South River Steamboat? Or was it the North River Steamboat backslash Clermont? The answer is choice C. It was referred to as the North River Steamboat as well as the Clermont or the Claremont. This uh, steamboat operated along the Hudson River between New York City and Albany. Now, the North River, or a.k.a. the Claremont Steamboat, was built, or rather I should say financed, by a Mr. Robert Livingston, along with Robert Fulton's assistance. We're going to learn a great deal about Robert Livingston, um, not only in this segment, but in other segments of the series. Robert Livingston, or rather I should say the Livingston family, I'll just tell you this much, is a very, very powerful um, family in New York. All right, um, ready for another question? Keep your seatbelts on, folks. What made Robert Fulton's steamboat so unique as it was considered state-of-the-art for its time? Well, from what I read, there were many, many unique uh, features behind this steamboat. And I probably could spend an entire podcast talking about the uh, features but I decided to narrow it down as to what I thought was truly relevant. Okay, why don't we learn some things? After all, you know, the thought of having a steamboat, to many, obviously, is very foreign. But to men like Robert Fulton, it's a big deal. So anyways, the Claremont was 142 feet long by 14 feet wide. Now, I know some of you are probably wondering what's so unique about those dimensions. Well, the reason why, for being 142 feet long and 14 feet wide, would it be fair to say that the Claremont was as big as, say, the Titanic or the Lusitania? No, not anywhere close to that of the size of the Titanic or the Lusitania. Titanic was 882 feet long, meaning that she was about that that she was as long as two and a half football fields. So no, uh, the Claremont or um, the North River Steamboat is not anywhere close to that of the Titanic. But by being 142 feet long by 14 feet wide, the Claremont, um, per those dimensions, would have had a deck just a few feet above the water's surface. So in other words, you know, we might think of her as a standard um, boat, although she is a steamboat, which is very, very grand because Fulton's got, Fulton's accomplished something here, folks. He's done something that, that while, yes, others have tried, but somehow he seems to have uh, the edge on it because he seems to have figured out 
uh, previous uh, mistakes that others had not been able to correct. And I will say that um, in the next uh, podcast segment, we will learn more about um, how Fulton went about studying uh, past uh, failed attempts by other um, inventors or other uh, entrepreneurs of their time. So another unique feature for this uh, Claremont was that um, it had a large copper boiler that was attached to a 15-foot smokestack. Does anybody know what a smokestack is? Well, it certainly would have something to do with uh, smoke. But a smokestack is another uh, term for pipe, funnel, or chimney. A smokestack basically is what discharges or releases smoke from sh the ship itself into the air. The steamboat was also equipped with two 15-foot circular wooden paddle wheels. What I found unique about these 15-foot um, circular wooden paddle wheels is that on each, one each to a side, there was one each to a side, meaning that each assembly got equipped with two sets of, spoke, of eight spokes. Spokes are bars or rods connecting the center of the wheel to its outer edge. You know, think about it. when we think of bicycles, we think of, you know, a regular bicycle having two wheels. Well, this um, ship, or steamboat rather, I should say, having um, circular wooden paddle wheels, one each to a side, where each one is getting equipped with uh, two sets of eight spokes. I mean, I, I saw a picture of this online, and uh, it was it's very revolutionary for its time. So, you know, oftentimes when we think of boats today, I mean, we think of them as, you know, being uh, motor boats. You know, yes, there are boats out there today that still have wheels on them, but those are boats that are more for recreational use where they are being used for greater tours, say, like on a lake or on, say, like the Mississippi River, for example, for tourism purposes. Now, when exactly in the summer of 1807 was the Claremont first officially launched onto the Hudson River's waters? Was it on July 4th of 1807? Was it August 17th, 1807? Or was it um, June the 6th of 1807? Well, the answer is choice B, August 17th, 1807. Now, prior to and around uh, the time of Fulton's steamboat waterway breakthrough, there were a majority of Americans whom displayed skepticism about acquiring power. Not just acquiring power, but, but um, acquiring technology that wasn't linked directly to nature's forces, a.k.a. wind. That's just one of the many examples of nature's forces. So I can see how there are a lot of skeptics, because many of these people don't, um, they truly don't believe that uh, what Robert Fulton is going to do is going to work. But one thing I can say is that the reason why many are skeptical is because, is because of the following, in my opinion. Let me ask you all this question. 
prior to and around the time the 19th century began, is the United States an agrarian or an industrial-based economy? The answer is choice A. The United States still remains, by the start of the 19th century, as an agrarian-based uh, economy, largely due to the fact that 90% of the uh, population of the United States, 90% of America's peoples, are living on farms. That means that really only about 10% are living in the cities, and it could be fair to say that the 10% who are living in the cities are... Um, are those who might be, say, well-to-do, or they are what we might refer to as uh, people of big business in today's time. So, yes, for many of these uh, people whom, uh, whom are skeptical, they would prefer to um, have their goods or prefer to be on a um, boat of the, of, of the time at, where the technology is going to be relied upon nature. So, but, so it is obviously fair to say that uh, by the start of the 19th century that America is nowhere, or rather I should say the United States is nowhere near the status of industrial power. Am I correct? Yes. However, with Robert Fulton's steamboat invention, America has taken the first of many large steps towards becoming an industrial superpower over time. So, in my opinion, it is very fair to say that Robert Fulton's um, voyage along the Hudson River, and this wasn't a solo voyage, folks. As a matter of fact, we'll find out here soon who all else was aboard the Clermont, but we should keep in mind that Robert Fulton was not the only one on this boat. There were other people on the boat. It might be worth finding out how they felt about this, because, after all, this, this ride or voyage along the Hudson River is not for, for recreation. I mean, on one hand, we could say that it's about showing off what Mr. Fulton has done but it's not one of those uh, modern-day tour boat rides where people are just going at their own leisurely purpose. The majority of the passengers aboard the Claremont comprised of friends and extended family, all of whom were connected, whether they were extended family or friends, to Robert Fulton's business partner, a Mr. Robert Livingston, a man whom was well-connected amongst New York's powerful elite, as well as having established solid business ties to the shipping, or what I would refer to as the commercial shipping industry. Robert Livingston was a man of many achievements, from being a Declaration of Independence signer, and not just signing the Declaration of Independence, but being on that Committee of Five that helped um, oversee the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, and not just the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, but bringing, bringing the document uh, before uh, the, the rest of uh, the body in Philadelphia, whom went about approving the motion to go forward with the document, as well as declaring official separation from England, 
come July 4th of 1776. So that committee of five uh, not only involved Mr. Robert Livingston, but of course Mr. Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Mr. John Adams, Mr. Roger Sherman, and Mr. Benjamin Franklin. But nonetheless, having a New Yorker on that committee of five was a very big deal, especially if you are a Livingston. And why not Mr. Robert Livingston? So besides uh, him being um, a signer to the Declaration of Independence and being on that committee of five, he would also um, go on to become a special minister to France. And we will discuss a little bit more uh, about this, uh, hopefully in the next podcast, that yes, uh, Mr. Livingston was a special minister to France whom helped negotiate uh, the treaty that resulted in doubling America's size. When I say doubling America's size, folks, what am I referring to? The Louisiana Purchase from four years earlier, where, you know, the United States' territory doubled from what we now know as present-day Louisiana to territory that stretched all the way out to the Pacific Coast, uh, most notably into uh, Oregon and Washington State. And because of the Louisiana Purchase, what did we get in return? What was able to be done? The Lewis and Clark expedition led by Mr. Meriwether Lewis and uh, William Clark, and along with others who uh, joined them in their journey west that uh, pretty much um, helped the United States not only acquire, establish the territory based upon the Louisiana Purchase, but eventually over time, other, other, um, what would you call it, territorial holdings in the Louisiana Territory would one day work out to where, um, where they would become official states of the Union. What was the mood of many uh, passengers aboard the Claremont as she began embarking or going up the Hudson River? Well, if you, regardless of whether you are a close friend or an immediate relative of the Livingston family, what do you think the mood, the overall mood was? I'm sure there were some who were excited. However, there were uh, a good number of the passengers whom were suspicious, silent, to being a bit fearful. Why would one be suspicious or fearful? Well, I know I mentioned earlier that there were those whom were still um, dependent upon the forces of nature to get them uh, to and from point A to point B via water, waterway. But for many of these people, they had never experienced something so grand, or really, I should say, foreign. In other words, being on a steamboat was just something unheard of knowing that smoke is going to come out from the smokestack and be released into the air, and then people wondering, not only on the steamboat itself, but from a distance watching, is this, is this new um, invention that we're witnessing, is this going to make it up and down the Hudson? Or is it going to go kapooey, or I should say, catch on fire along the river? There, there are unknowns. So, yes, there, are, there might be a few people who are very excited about this, but there are those who are very suspicious, silent, and just simply uh, fearful. However, uh, for, for some of these people, they know that um, 
that their lives may not be the same when it comes to this new advancement in transportation because boats, most notably steamboats, their goal is to reduce the use of existing transportation methods that have simply not been able to have been proven relevant, being most notably roads. Of course, roads will improve over time, but if there's one thing that roads cannot do is, um, you know, roads, you know, shipping some goods from point A to point B along a road can be done, but we're only talking about maybe a couple pounds worth of goods. We need to be able to ship goods on mass quantity scales. In other words, instead of only having room for just five products on the back of your buggy, we want to have uh, goods where we can hold up to 50 pounds or more to be able to get uh, something from point A to point B, but the only way that's going to be able to be achieved is by boat. And not just, you know, we're not talking uh, recreational boats, we're talking about commercial boats, steamboats, for example. So, for many of these passengers, they just simply weren't sure about just how effective non-nature technological advances would play out given mankind had been accustomed to depending upon nature's forces when navigating bodies of water. The skeptics around the time of Robert Fulton's inaugural steamboat ride dubbed his mission as the following. Fulton's Folly. Of course, when I think of a mission that was dubbed and it has um, the phrase folly, I often think of Seward's Folly, which occurred shortly after the Civil War ended and after Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. Seward's Folly was named after uh, the Secretary of State, uh, William Seward, who, um, who sought to um, look into Alaska. Because remember, folks, what, what nation controlled Alaska? Russia. So the United States bought Alaska from Russia, and there were many people who felt that William Seward was crazy for, um, for pursuing this. You know, what is there in Alaska? Well, there is a lot in Alaska. Alaska has provided a lot of rich natural resources, and yes, uh, a little over 30 years ago, unfortunately, um, a terrible environmental disaster did occur there. Um, I remember I was almost 10 years old when that happened, being the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And I remember even 10 years after that oil spill had occurred back in 1999, there were still um, traces of oil uh, found um, in the um, river uh, where... Um, the oil um, spill incident had occurred. So, you know, oil spills obviously don't go away overnight. They take time. And it could be fair to say that even during the time that uh, Robert Fulton was alive and with these skeptics who were very um, skeptical about the use of non-nature um, technological advances, they might as well have been the equivalent of environmentalists for their time. So nonetheless, uh, the skeptics um, who were very, very um, opposed to Robert Fulton's mission, not just his mission of going up and down the um, Hudson River, but the technology he was um, 
instituting or trying to prove uh, the naysayers wrong, those naysayers had had this whole theme dubbed as Fulton's Folly, because to them, the idea of transitioning from traditional sailing practices to something of non-nature use was pure irrelevancy due to past attempts having ended in failure. And hey, as I said earlier, uh, we will mention um, or we will learn in, um, some more about uh, past attempts, uh, hopefully in the next uh, podcast segment um, so hopefully that is something that will be discussed, and if so, I will make sure to uh, provide uh, relevant information on uh, past uh, attempts. Now, once uh, Robert Fulton's um, ride steamboat uh, journey takes place, you know, he's off to a, a decent start. But is it fair to say that something unexpected will occur? Believe it or not, folks, it will. Shortly after the Claremont began its way, began its way upriver and route from New York City to Albany, one of the steam engines stalled. Okay, when a steam engine stalls, can the vessel move? No, it can't move. If your car stalled along the road, would your car be able to? Um, would you be able to restart your car? No. I remember years ago when I was in college, one time my car stalled on me right as I was making my way back to campus. I was very lucky to have not been on the highway, and um, I did have some assistance, which I was very thankful for, but I also realized just how much worse it could have been. So for Robert Fulton, is it fair to say that he, well, let me ask you this. Is it fair to say that at this moment now that he's stuck between a rock and a hard place? Yes. So how is he going to get out of it? Well, he's got um, a crew aboard. Fulton and his crew um, go about um, finding the problem. And they fixed it. It took about 30 minutes, though, to fix the problem. But after the problem was fixed, the steamboat, a.k.a. the Clermont, resumed its voyage while kicking out flames and smoke from the smokestack. And by doing this, what had Fulton and his uh, crew done at this moment? The naysayers from a distance along the Hudson River shoreline are pretty much already saying, this guy's not going to make it. He's just going to be another example, like everyone else before, who didn't make it. Well, Fulton already has proven that to them that, hey, I've, we figured out the problem. We've got it fixed, and now we're moving. So he has proven to them that the Claremont wouldn't explode nor sink at the, at the moment that the problem has been fixed, but despite moving, folks, listen to this. How fast do you think the Claremont is moving against the Hudson River's current? Is it moving at 10 miles an hour? Is it moving at 15 miles an hour or at 5 miles an hour? 5 miles an hour, folks, that's the answer. Doesn't seem like the fastest speed, but you know what? 5 miles an hour is better than not going anywhere. So, despite moving at five miles an hour against the Hudson River's current, 
the Claremont made its way upriver, and 32 hours later, she arrived safe to Albany. And not long afterwards, Fulton proved the skeptics wrong once again by returning to New York from Albany within 30 hours. Robert Fulton now was the one whom had the last laugh by silencing the skeptics and their notions of all would-be follies. So, can you imagine being in Robert Fulton's shoes and proving the skeptics wrong? And the best part is, to me, he was able to prove to the skeptics the exact opposite, knowing that, okay, the steam engine has stalled. we got two choices. We can either throw in the towel and quit, or we can, you know, get up and do something about it and prove to these skeptics that, hey, mankind is still going to take a large step. And, he, and that's just what happened. At the time of Fulton's remarkable achievement round trip in August of 1807, little did he know that the steamboat alone would prove to become America's most vital invention during the first half of the 19th century. I mean, who would have thought? But somehow, there again, the fire of his genius isn't going away. It's not going away today. It's not going away tomorrow. It may never go away for him. But what he has done so far has been one, the first of many large steps for mankind. All right, let's, let's, let's listen in on some uh, geography uh, questions here, folks. And not just geography questions, but some history that will tie into the geography part. Are the North and Hudson Rivers two separate bodies of water in New York State? The answer is no. The North River was a primary was a primary alternative name for the Lower Hudson during the start of the 19th century, as it's considered the southernmost portion of the Hudson River around the area of New York City and Northeast New Jersey. Okay, so whenever you hear of the North River, and um, most notably in uh, New York, don't think of it as a separate river, but think of it technically as the Hudson River, but think of it more so as the southernmost portion of the Hudson River around the area that we now know as New York City and Northeast New Jersey. Shortly before August 17, 1807, two weeks earlier, Robert Fulton officially named his boat as follows, the North River Steamboat of Claremont. But more often he referred to the, the, the vessel alone as the North River Steamboat or North River. Now, I do believe many of you all are want, wanting to know, how did Claremont come about? Well, I did some research, and even when I read this book, I was blown away exactly how Claremont came about. I had known for a long time that Robert Fulton's steamboat was the Claremont, but that was pretty much it. So I'm glad that I've read this book because now I have a better appreciation for why it was uh, referred to as Claremont. Okay, let's find out. Uh, for starters, Claremont, and that's spelled C-L-E-R-M-O-N-T. So for starters, Claremont means clear mountain in French. 
course, when I think of um, mountains in uh, foreign language or terminology, whenever I think of Monticello, I, I, I know that, that is uh, in Italian uh, for little mountain, but Clermont meaning um, in French clear mountain. Secondly, there was an estate named Clermont owned by the Livingston family along the Hudson River, which included views of Catskill Mountains. And therefore, because the mountain views were so visible across the Hudson River from the Livingston estate, Claremont became the official chosen name. And this was done so starting around 1740. Now, Claremont, um, prior to it becoming Claremont, um, the uh, property which it still uh, stands on was uh, first um, settled in 1728. Uh, the Claremont Estate is located in the southwest in southwestern Columbia County, home to seven generations of the Livingston family whom resided there for more than two centuries. And Claremont, at the time of when Chancellor Robert Livingston and his family resided there, it'd be fair to say that they saw, uh, or rather, I should say, witnessed many historical moments. Now, is, when I say Chancellor Robert Livingston, is this the same uh, person whom, um, whom has uh, business ties with Robert Fulton? Yes. And the reason why he was referred to as Chancellor Livingston was because of his um, position on the high court. So when you think of Chancellor, think of someone who is of uh, high-ranking status, uh, most notably, say, like in an administrative uh, position. Now, you all will appreciate this. Uh, previous school textbooks from years past called Robert Fulton's uh, steamboat Claremont, but never once do I recall in all the years when I was growing up when learning about uh, Fulton's steamboat, the Claremont, never once was it uh, mentioned that the that Claremont was an estate located along the Hudson River owned and operated by the Livingston family. So it does pay to um, learn a little bit more about uh, something that you might have only known one or two things about for so long, and now all of a sudden you've gotten a complete 360 reversal for all the uh, right reasons. So when you think of Claremont, folks, think of the Livingstons. And Claremont is still around today, folks. It is um, available uh, for the public to go inside and tour. It's been a national, um, a national historic landmark since the 1970s. Now, where exactly uh, does the Hudson River begin? The Hudson River, folks, begins in the Adirondack Mountains north of Albany. Okay, when you think of Adirondack Mountains, one place comes to my mind my wife and I went there 12 years ago for our five-year anniversary, Lake Placid, New York, in the northern part of the Adirondack Mountains. The Adirondacks are so big, folks, that you could fit the entire state of Vermont into that mountainous region. And the Adirondack Park has six million acres of protected land, meaning that there's more um, protected land in the Adirondack Park than uh, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Glacier and Grand Canyon National Parks alone. Uh, the, Grand, uh, the Adirondacks are uh, a very, very uh, 
special uh, place. I would like to get back there one day, but uh, whenever uh, you all think of the Adirondacks, one place you can think of is uh, Lake Placid, where uh, a miracle happened 42 years ago that um, was so grand that we'll probably never see another miracle of that um, kind. So yes, the Hudson River uh, begins in the Adirondack Mountains north of Albany and flows southward through the Hudson Valley and eventually exits into the Atlantic Ocean at New York Harbor. Well, it is fair to say that we've uh, covered a lot of ground, not just uh, from a historical uh, point, but also a geographical um, from a geographical perspective as well. So when I'm on the air next time with you all, uh, we're going to be uh, learning um, more about um, Robert Fulton's uh, past studies. In other words, how he went about studying uh, past um, attempts uh, to create a steamboat and why some people um, had failed even though they had um, tried valiantly to... Um, to be the first to do something that had not been done that had not been done before, and we will also learn more about uh, Robert Livingston. It also might be worth pointing out that some of you are probably wondering now, with this new um, invention that Robert Fulton has uh, invented, will Robert Fulton and Mr. Livingston have a monopoly? I know I could be giving something away, but I'm sure many of you are wondering, um, you know, here Robert Fulton's um, already ahead of the game, but if he's already ahead of the game, wouldn't he want to um, take advantage of everything there is possible by seeing to it that no one else uh, beats him to the punch in terms of having, um, what do you call it, uh, first rights, in terms of um, having uh, proper... Um, waterway rights going from New York City to Albany and vice versa? I would think so. But I do know that we are um, running out of time here, so uh, therefore when I'm on the air again next, um, what I've just mentioned a second ago, we will um, learn um, a great deal about. And thank you again to all of you, my Faithful 101 podcast listeners. Without, without you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but I do know that because of you all, you guys are the driving force that has uh, kept me going. So uh, thank you again, and I look forward to being back on the air with all of you next time. Uh, take care for now and stay safe.